You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The new Super Beats Hard Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. His country in the midst of a war in a foreign land thousands of miles away, a U.S. president called on his counterpart in the United Kingdom, the Prime Minister, and asked for his help. Could any British troops be spared? The Prime Minister refused. Could then, the American president asked, at least a token force be sent to just give the appearance of British support for the American operation? Again, the answer was no. The relationship between Lyndon Johnson and Harold Wilson was not the same as that between Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, or Thatcher and Reagan. A Labor Party Prime Minister, Harold Wilson was concerned that any involvement with the Vietnam War, the war that the French had so recently abandoned, would doom his politics. And as a result of his refusal, Lyndon Johnson in turn would refuse to see Wilson when he wanted to come to the United States and make an appearance. No sense crossing the Atlantic to flap our coattails, Lyndon Johnson said in a letter to Wilson. The bond between George W. Bush and Tony Blair, which has been devastating for Blair's politics, and certainly the key reason why Tony Blair will be stepping down this month, is an example of the odd relationship that's developed in modern times between our chief executive and that of the old mother country. The first British Prime Minister a declared independent America had to deal with was Lord North. He insisted that colonial taxes passed by Parliament be collected, and he saw through the prosecution of the war. Initially, the Revolutionary War was good for Lord North's politics, until the Battle of Saratoga, which was an unexpected and huge victory for the Americans, raised questions about North's government especially from opposition Whigs, who grew in Parliament during the Revolutionary War, particularly after the Battle of Saratoga. After the Battle of Yorktown, Lord North lost a no-confidence vote in Parliament, and government was handed over to the Marquis of Rockingham, a Whig who had supported American independence. Very often in the Revolutionary War, we talk about the battles, and certainly the key Battle of Yorktown, it's certainly accurate history to say that that ended the Revolutionary War. But what truly ended the Revolutionary War was what occurred in the British Parliament after the Battle of Yorktown, and that is that Lord North's government collapsed, the Whigs were successful in obtaining a majority, and the King, King George III, was forced to accept a, a Whig government. He detested the Whigs, but he had no choice. Although the Marquis of Rockingham died months into office, his successor, the Earl of Shelburne, would continue peace with America and eventually would sign the Peace Treaty of Paris in 1783. Now, though that wouldn't be the end of troubles between England and the United States, it certainly was a uh, generous peace document. One prime minister who caused problems for America was Lord Palmerston, prime minister during the Civil War. Palmerston was a believer in British gunboat democracy. He had supported independence movements in Hungary and Italy in an attempt to undermine Austria's power. So when the Confederates announced their independence, Palmerston was eager to jump in the war and support the South. Queen Victoria, however, insisted on British neutrality. And eventually, British working people would side with the North, fed up with the Confederacy's cotton embargo. The Confederacy engaged in a cotton embargo 
of England in an attempt to force them into siding with them in the Civil War. It had the opposite effect. The working people of England, now out of jobs because the cotton wasn't coming in, supported the North. Grover Cleveland suffered from British support much as Tony Blair now suffers from American support. But it was support he did not seek. During his bitter 1888 re-election attempt, an anonymous letter writer reached out to Sackville West, who was then Britain's ambassador to the United States. This letter writer asked the British ambassador who he should vote for in the U.S. presidential election. Now, normally, a letter from an American voter to the British ambassador about who he should vote for will be disregarded, not answered. Foolishly, thinking that it was a private letter, Sackville West, the British ambassador, replied that President Cleveland was the better choice. Unfortunately, this letter writer turned out to be a Republican operative in California, and the letter was then widely published to make President Cleveland seem like a tool of British interests. After all, he had supported low tariffs and free trade, a policy that one could spin, and the Republicans in that year certainly did spin, to be pro-British, since Republicans at the time favored protectionist tariffs to protect U.S. industries. This led to a series of letters from Grover Cleveland to Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, and after some time, Sackville West was recalled. But the episode was one of many factors, including the loss of the crucial Tammany Hall machine in New York that led to Grover Cleveland's defeat in 1888. But in these cases, Abraham Lincoln and Grover Cleveland spoke to prime ministers only through go-betweens or letters. The first prime minister and president to meet was Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson at the peace conferences following World War I. George found Wilson's policy towards the defeated Germans as too generous. Interestingly enough, Lloyd George also found French leader Clemenceau too harsh. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Telling reporters that he was sitting between Napoleon and Jesus Christ. In the end, the demands of Lloyd George and the French forced Woodrow Wilson to accept a harsh treaty that was then imposed on the Germans, the terms of which were exploited by Republicans in Midwest German-American communities in the 1918 midterm elections, which were a disaster for Wilson's administration. While Labor Prime Minister Ramsey MacDonald visited America in the 1920s and was the first Prime Minister to do so, the most famous relationship and the one that sets the precedent for those that would follow is that between Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. The relationship was born out of necessity. England had no allies against Germany outside of the British Commonwealth and needed help from America. And to some extent, Roosevelt delivered, selling military supplies to England and eventually passing the Lend-Lease program, which would allow them to buy weapons now and pay after the war. But chummy as it was, the bond was not as strong as some historians presented. For his part, FDR feared that Churchill might be trying to rebuild the British Empire, and thus went out of his way to work with Stalin, refusing a private meeting with he and Churchill before the Yalta Conference that would determine much of how post-war Europe would go. Nonetheless, the Churchill-FDR model set the precedent to be followed when Churchill would again be Prime Minister in the 50s, and Eisenhower, who also had a good relationship with Churchill from World War II, was president. But his successor, Anthony Eden, would get on Eisenhower's bad side when he joined with Israel and the French in the Suez Crisis. British troops, along with Israelis and French, paratrooped into Suez to take over the canal from the control of the Egyptians. Eisenhower did not approve of the show of force, and eventually threatening to sell government reserves of British pounds, he forced Eden to back down and remove British troops from Suez. As a result of the Suez Crisis, Anthony Eden was forced to resign as Prime Minister. Harold Macmillan, Eden's successor as Prime Minister, fared a lot better with John F. Kennedy and began one of the first programs of U.S. missile deployments in the U.K. Seeking to restore the luster of her conservative party, Margaret Thatcher saw that the relationship between her and U.S. President Ronald Reagan would continue in the Churchill-FDR model. Thatcher permitted the U.S. to base more missiles in the U.K. despite protests in her country and supported the Libyan airstrike. Reagan, in turn, quietly removed the block on deportation of suspected IRA members charged with crimes in the U.K. Winning several consecutive elections, Thatcher showed that a strong relationship with the U.S. president made a British prime minister look relevant, worldly, and successful, something that British voters noticed, and something that a young MP named Tony Blair, who won his seat while his party was being crushed 
in Thatcher's landslide of 1983, must have had his eye on. Once he became Prime Minister, Blair took advantage of opportunities to cooperate both with Bill Clinton in Bosnia and Kosovo and then with George W. Bush in Iraq. Harold Wilson's recent experience had been the French defeat in Vietnam. Blair had eyed Thatcher's successes, so while Harold Wilson rebuffed Lyndon Johnson, Blair accepted the invitation of George W. Bush with disastrous results. So often, present decisions are made based on history, but just as often those decisions are made without a thorough research of all history. Today's actors, it often seems, base their decision just on the most recent history, same way that the news media makes its predictions and calls. The relationship between the British Prime Minister and the American President is often a double-edged sword and cause problems for both parties. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.